0: installment in our series in Titus and um, it has been it feels like it's been brief but it's been substantial and it's definitely been um, it's definitely been sweet for us just in terms of the way in which the Lord has really been kind of speaking to us for it and so um, I'm encouraged that we've um, got to this point. And they're able to really kind of give some conclusive considerations to how the Lord is really speaking to us. Um, Individually and corporately as a church, um, you know, the reality is that we are journeying on mission together. And as we do so, um, our lives have uh, a way in which they influence and impact one another. Whether we choose to recognize that or not, and that is much of what Um, Paul is addressing here as we look at um, what we've called the 3D gospel. There's been a great emphasis in this book on the gospel made real, the gospel made flesh, God revealed through his people. And in that, there's this kind of underlying sense of the importance of image. And we see this reiterated in our uh, last verses as we close out the book, the importance of image. Now, we live in such a, an image-oriented culture. Um, you know, it's uh, once upon a time, um, there was emails, and then, you know, MySpace and Facebook, and now it's all about Instagram and Snapchat, and the, the the primary medium that people kind of gravitate toward, especially the younger generation, for whom it's first hand, is really that of of image. And um, we see so many people go into great lengths to kind of manipulate and manufacture the the image that they portray. And so you know the the pictures are always at the right angle with the right lighting, and you never catch them on a bad day and, you know, they've got this image to keep up and it can be so easy for people of substance to look at that and just say, how shallow, how shallow, you know, just concerned about appearances and we would have good reason to say that because we realize that there's more to life than that. And yet, as those who are created in God's image, how are we representing Him? How are we presenting the image of God? Because fundamentally, what we see Paul getting into throughout this short letter to Titus is the fact that as image bearers, we are to faithfully bear God's image in ways that people would recognize, in ways that are distinct. Old school 3D glasses there on the picture. And the idea was that the, the glasses would create a sense of depth perception or depth of field by which the image we're looking at is perceived to have solidity. It's perceived to have three dimensions. And so it's basically the, the, the glasses and the, the rendering of the image playing a trick on the mind in order to convince the mind that actually, one aspect of it is nearer and one aspect is further. And as that happens, we think, okay, we're looking at a, an, a, a, an image with depth. An image, not just 2D, flat, but with depth, with substance. And it really kind of dawned on me as I was going through this, these closing verses That, you know, this is what the Lord is wanting to drive home for us. That there be a sense of contrast in our lives between that which is righteous and that which is unrighteous. That which is godly and that which is ungodly. And with that sense of contrast, people will be able to see the substance of God's image more clearly defined in 3D. That was the science bit. Mm-hmm. Let's read our verses and pray. Titus 3, 8 to 15. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the truth. Grace be with you all. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your grace towards us. Because we are people who are evidently in need of it. And we thank you, Lord, that there are different ways in which you've purposed for your grace to work in our lives. One of those being the ministering of your word. Because your word is spirit and it's life. And there is a power and an authority in the preached word of God. And so I thank you, Lord, that we've gathered here today, Lord, in your name, to exalt you, to worship you in every way. And particularly in the hearing of your preached word. I pray that you would use me even beyond myself, Lord. And show yourself strong in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as the Apostle Paul winds this letter up and brings it to a close, he highlights that this saying that has been shared is trustworthy. And this is a formula that Paul uses occasionally to kind of highlight a fundamental truth of Christian doctrine. And so just think for a minute what it is the saying is that Paul's speaking of. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that God has revealed himself in Christ, the Savior. He has appeared in time and space, a real person on the planet at a point in time that we can refer to. That the Old Testament they look forward to and we now look back to in faith. And we recognize that the Savior has completed and finished the saving work. We do not need to do anything in order to complete or even add to the work that Christ has done. That is why we are not saved by our works. The only works that we're saved by are His. The works that Christ has done. And so Paul says that this... Is a trustworthy saying. You can go to the bank on this. It's true. And he also says that I want you to insist on these things. Insist. Now, in our life and times, we don't understand church to be a place where people really insist anything of us. Unless you come from old school. And there's all kinds of insisting going on, normally not of a a godly or productive nature. But the reality is we're adults, we're people who have our own minds, we have freedom of choice. And so we recognize, okay, I I choose to come to church, I choose to give myself to the word, I choose to, to fellowship, and likewise I can choose not to. This is this is my freedom. And yet, if we are truly bond slaves of Christ, then we recognize that we have no freedom and we have no rights other than that which God gives us, other than that which God determines, other than that which God defines. Because He is our master. And this is what it means by Jesus being Lord of your life. Jesus being Lord means he rules, he dictates, he is the one who says what goes and what doesn't. How many of us really live our Christian lives like that? How many of us view our Christian lives as if, you know, it's just a menu from which we can make a choice? Certain things we can opt in, other things we can opt out. Leave the side dish, I don't want that. But give me an extra helping of appetizer. Jesus is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And that's not just Lord of all people, but Lord of all of our lives. Now, like you, I appreciate the struggle I appreciate the the wrestling of that reality. But the first thing we have to do is to recognize and submit to that as being true. Because if we see ourselves in a place as being autonomous individuals who can choose to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and on, on our best days we might do a bit to please God, then we've got the wrong understanding of Christianity. And this is why Paul can say to Titus, insist on these things. These things are of God. These are God's expectations. And so in that, those who have believed in God must be careful be careful. We had a, a flood out here, uh, a burst pipe out here. And, um, you know, they say experience is a great teacher. Praise be to God. Having been there, my grandma used to say, once bitten, twice shy. Having been there a few times now, we've learned not to take anything for granted. And the flood board was in place. <laughs> Praise be to God. And the Lord bless every one of you that are using the building and faithfully putting the floodboard back even when it seems like there is absolutely no point. Amen. Because who? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Harry's back. <laughs> <laughs> Praise be to God. Thank God for your life, my sister. You know what? No one would have thought there would be a flood this weekend. And yet, the pipe was burst and it ran for probably 2 days 2 uh yeah yeah about 2 days in total and so we would have been washed out fully and totally and yet when you looked out there you saw the ground was all broken up i don't even know how it came to burst and how the ground got all cracked up and everything I, you know, one week we're here, it's fine, and then a couple days later, and it's, it's all messed up. And if you weren't careful, you could have just wandered through and ended up on your face. And so, when Thames Water came out, the first thing they'd done was put out a couple of cones. Hazard warning be careful, mind how you go, watch your step. Paul says, be careful to devote yourself to good works. In being careful that it requires a thinking about, a a, a consideration. How am I going to do, how am I going to interact or engage with that thing that I need to be careful about? And so... Even though we are not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. Saving faith produces works. And so it's necessary that we don't take God's grace for granted and simply think, well, you know what? I'm saved by grace. And therefore, works are not important. They're not even necessary. Because if I make mistakes, if I fall, if I don't bother, grace is sufficient. It, it covers all my failings and my flaws. Again, that is misunderstanding and misappropriating the doctrine of God's grace. James tells us, we went through the book of James, We learned how Martin Luther, the reformer, we just had the the 500th anniversary of the reformation. And you had this man in the 16th century who God raised up to challenge the establishment. That were focused on religious works. And he was so tormented that he had no peace. And then he he read from the scriptures, the just shall live by faith. And he, he... rose up and he raised his voice and he protested against this regime that was completely oriented and, and focused on religious duty, religious works. And even at that time, he wasn't trying to start a new work. He was genuinely trying to reform the existing work. That's why it's called the Reformation. And even he, as he looked at the book of James, was like, I don't even understand how this is meant to be. Maybe this is one of those books that's not meant to be in the Bible. He wanted to tear it out. Because James said, faith without works is dead. And he felt like there was a conflict. And for many of us, we might, we might not reason it that deeply, but in our lives, there's a similar conflict. Because we feel like, well, we're saved by grace, so works are not important. And yet, does this sound like works are not important? Does this sound like works are not? Be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for People. Just before we got into Titus, we were looking at Hebrews in the the revision series, just looking at the basics and just being reminded that God expects his people to be productive. He expects his people to be fruitful. Is your life fruitful? Are you a fruitful branch? In John 15, it says, the branch that is unfruitful gets cut off and thrown into the fire. And you're like, hold on a second. But isn't that branch in the vine that is the Lord? And so if you're in the Lord, does that mean you can lose your salvation? Does that mean that, you know, if I'm not good enough, I won't go to heaven? That I'm going to get cast into the fire? Well, that's not what it means, but what it does indicate is that fruitfulness is important. Amen? Amen. We understand we're not saved by works, but again, it just emphasizes that which James is saying. Faith without works is dead. And so where are the works that accompany your faith, if you truly have faith? I've told this story before. Um, for much of my life, I, g- I grew up in Clapham with my gran. And um, when we moved, we, we used to live on a, in a block um, on Clapham Park Road, that's where I was born. And then we moved probably in my junior years, I don't know, five or six, to another part of Clapham. It was a new builder's estate and my gran had a little garden. And, um, you know, she was quite green-fingered and um, she liked to grow roses. And so growing roses in her garden, um, sometimes she was unwell, and so she would send me out to tend the garden. <laughs> Big risk. <laughs> and so she's like, go and prune the roses for me, Ephraim. I'm like, granny, but you prune the roses. All I mean, what do I know how to prune the roses? And she said, well, you've got to cut back. Some of the ones that have kind of looked like they've got dead ends so that they can be more productive. And you have to, you have to cut off the, the branches, the, the sucker branches. And I said, there's, there's such things as sucker branches. She said, yes, the sucker branches. And it took me a long time to actually understand what branches she was talking about, even though she so, showed me several times. Because these sucker branches were branches that just looked the same as the other branches at a first glance. But there were a a couple of things that caused them to become, um, you know, quite clearly not healthy branches. And the primary one was that they never produced any roses. And so they had thorns, and they had leaves, they were a little bit lighter in color, but they never produced any fruit. And basically, those branches were like leeches draining life from the healthy stem of the rose. And so they needed to be cut off so that the fullness of the life within the the, the branch could flood through and flourish. And so even though it looked like it was a genuine part of the rose bush it was actually an unhealthy aspect that needed to be cut away now you think nothing of it at the time later on become a christian start reading the bible john 15 branches that don't bear fruit get cut off and thrown in the fire and i'm like huh them sucker branches they need to get cut off and it makes sense to me They were never a genuine aspect of the rose bush. And so it's important that we give our attention to bearing fruit, being fruitful. And Paul's focus here in relation to that is that of good works. He says, These things are excellent, excellent. Are we concerned with doing our utmost for his highest? Then we're being clearly told here to to give ourselves to good works, to devote ourselves, not just in a dutiful sense, but from a a heart of devotion unto the Lord. This is an excellent thing and it's a profitable, it's something that causes us to be productive and profitable, not just in a way that it profits those who benefit from our good works, but it also profits us who are given to good works. God is unselfish in the way that he blesses his people. And so not only does he use his people to bless others, but those who are a blessing are also blessed in the process. And we recognize that, you know, as we said at the beginning, this is a central theme that Paul is driving at throughout this letter. In verse 1, the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness... Godly living. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he's concerned with a lack of good works. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So it's not even just that they were not producing good works, but they were producing works contrary to that which represented God. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter 2, verse 3, the older women are to teach what is good. 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Eager, motivated. 3 verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And so we see that even right to the closing paragraph, the Apostle Paul is concerned with the fact that we get this message. God is concerned with the fact that we get this message. That we be a people who are zealous and equipped and ready and devoted to good works. It's interesting because in verse 9, whereas we see in verse 8, these things are excellent and profitable... In verse 9, the Apostle Paul lists uh, a number of things that are unprofitable and worthless. You see the contrast. The good works are excellent and profitable. And these other things that we'll get onto in a second are unprofitable and worthless. And so here we see this contrast. May the good works be at the forefront And these worthless, unprofitable ones be pushed to the back. And as that happens, the gospel is made distinct. It's presented in 3D. As people perceive the substance of it. Again, in verse 14. He's already began to give his final greetings and he started his his name check, and even then he returns almost randomly in verse 14 back to the same matter and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and what? Not be... Some of you guys need to get your glasses adjusted. Can you see that? And not be, I have to pull out my glasses today, you know, know, there's certain times you just realize you're getting old. (laughs) We're not to be unfruitful. And so how fruitful is your life? Fruitful in godly terms. Fruitful in the knowledge of the truth, fruitful in the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit, fruitful in imaging God. That basically just means being like Christ. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the express image of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. This is who Jesus is. In the ESV, it says, the exact imprint of his nature. And so, whereas the image of God in humanity was corrupted at the fall because of the sin of Adam and Eve, God is the... Perfect representation of the restored image of God in man. 100% man, 100% God. And all who are in him are called to Christ-likeness by his Spirit working in us. I urge you to pursue fruitfulness. Complacency, lethargy, and indifference is, a, is so common within our culture. Let's root it out of our own hearts and lives. Let's be careful to examine ourselves, to look at our lives on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, and consider, where is the evidence of fruitfulness in my life? And furthermore, where am I being unfruitful or unproductive? Because it's clear that there are certain situations and scenarios that we can engage in that cause us to be counterproductive, to be unfruitful. Verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. There's so much in church life that we can get drawn into. One controversy over another. I keep getting corrected by um, Kian when I say controversy. (laughs) It's not controversy, dad. It's controversy. Controversy. So what do you want me to do? <laughs> that's, how I, that's the only way I've ever heard it in my house. <laughs> what a controversy. <laughs> <laughs> but there's all kind of foolish controversies and conspiracies and foolish. You know it says foolish, you know, that we can get so wrapped up in taking our eye off the ball. Distracting us. They say, if the devil can't defeat you, he'll discourage you. And if he can't discourage you, you know what he'll do? He'll distract you. Let us not be easily distracted by conspiracy theories and all kinds of controversies. Dissensions. Dissensions disagreement so dissent is the opposite of consent consent is to agree to dissent is to disagree let's not be characterized as disagreeable people so often even in the name of righteousness we can have such a sense of spiritual pride and know it all that everything we say is just disagreeable Oh, no, that's not right. Oh, no, I don't like that. Oh, that's not good. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) To the point where we're really ready to to have arguments over these things. Non-essential issues. Let's not be disagreeable people. This is what the Bible says. Don't be given to dissension. Don't be disagreeable. Contentious with it. Quarreling about the law. And, you know, primarily it's speaking about the law of God. And you could take the law being the law of God and you can apply that to legalistic attitudes. Where people want to impose their own standard of law, their own standard of expectation on others, and then quarrel when they don't meet it. Jesus never died and left you on the throne. He rose again and took his rightful place. No vacancies here. (laughs) These things are unprofitable and worthless. Paul goes on, as for a person who stirs up division. Now, this is taking it to another level. You know, in the Christian life, there is room for difference of opinion. There is room for difference of opinion. Even on certain things, you know, you might have certain views on the gifts of the Spirit, or when Jesus is going to return, or, you know, which translation of the Bible you would prefer to use, or you think, you can have your views on these things. These are secondary issues that are non-essential to salvation and godliness. Some of these things are important, even the the, the whole Calvinist-Arminian debate. Some of these things are important, but they're not essential to salvation. And we must not be individuals who cause division... Over the, people cause division for less, let's be real. Just on the basis that they don't like the way things run, they don't like the way things happen, this isn't right, and they're really opinionated, and they're loud, and it becomes divisive. And not only must we repent if we see that in ourselves, but we must also resist when we see it in others. Because when we accommodate it, we are empowering that person. We may just simply need to say, fine, you're entitled to your opinion. And you know what? It's probably better that you keep it to yourself and take it before the Lord. Amen. It may be even that we need to rebuke a person and say, look, you know what? I think that your attitude is really divisive, you know? Because that's not an issue to be getting so wound up over and, and so high-minded over. Fair enough. You, you may see things differently. And so we have to be careful of those who cause divisions. But this word is speaking specifically of those who differ on essential matters of doctrine. The deity of Christ. Is Jesus truly the son of God? God manifest in the flesh. Is Christ's sacrifice for sin sufficient alone? These things are essential matters of the faith. And the Bible says that, look, you know what, even in an environment where people have freedom to think, uh, you know, I, I always say that uh, Ecclesia is, is a fellowship of the thoughtful, and everybody doesn't see the same on every matter, but that's one of the beauties of church life for us, because we still love one another, and we still serve to, to love one another, and serve one another, and serve together, and reach the lost, and... We're able to do that despite our differences on certain things. That's a mark of maturity in the eyes of the Lord. And yet, the uncomfortable reality is that there are times when we have to mark individuals as being heretical. The root word for division there is where we get our word heretical, meaning They differ on essential matters of Christian truth. And those things cannot be allowed to be promoted among us. We can't allow those things to spread like cancer. But they need to be challenged, contested, and if necessary, cut out. And this is what Paul's saying. After warning them once... Twice have nothing more to do with him. Such a person is warped, sinful, and what? Self-condemned. You see, the truth is available for everyone, the scriptures are there. Peter tells us that God has given us everything that relates to life and godliness. You know what? You don't have to go to Bible college to actually understand the Bible. Don't get it twisted and don't let nobody try and mislead you. As somebody who has submitted to Christ, given your heart to the Lord, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit within you, 1 John 2 tells us, will lead you into truth. Now that's not to the exclusion of and the absence of teachers. But ultimately, as you are engaging with the Bible... Righteously handling the Word of God, rightly dividing it, keeping text in its context, patiently seeking understanding, the Holy Spirit will help you to understand the truth of Scripture. And yet, when there are those who are self-condemned because they choose to dismiss what the Scripture clearly teaches they choose to hold on to some other doctrine or philosophy, then they need to be marked. And even separated from us. Now, that might not feel very loving. You know, as long as we love one another, isn't that all that matters? God is love. Jesus said, love the Lord and love your neighbor. How loving is that? How many of you, if you had a dog that you loved, had it from a puppy, lovely dog, cheeky dog, playful dog, and this dog grew, and it then became a threat to one of your children. You're, you've got a little toddler in the house. Regardless of the love that you have for the dog, the love that you have for your child is greater. Amen? Amen. And so even in a situation like that, as much as you love the dog, you come to a point where you realize you need to put the dog out because it's a danger to the household. And so even exercising church discipline in such a manner is an expression of love. Love for the people of God. Because as God's people, we're called to protect and serve. We're called to serve and protect. And we see this theme from Genesis right through the Scriptures. And so let's not be unbalanced. Let's not be one-sided in our view. It is not love at the expense of truth. The Bible says that we speak the truth in love. Amen? So let us not try and be more loving than God. Or allow ourselves to be taken away with sentimentality. Because that's all that love without truth is. Love without truth is merely sentimentality. So then we see... Paul saluting and regarding those who have been involved in his life and ministry as part of that team. And even as we come to these names, it's easy to kind of just read over them and say that these are just some practical instructions. But just take note of the fact that these individuals have been highlighted and noted. These are people who have co-labored, partnered with Paul in ministry And those who Paul himself has concern for, he appreciates and he values. And so he is sending Artimaeus and Tychicus to Titus, to Crete. Sending in the cavalry. These guys have got Titus' back and they're going to come and help support the work. And then he considers Zenos and Apollos who are to be blessed as they're sent on their way to continue the work of the Lord elsewhere? Would your name ever feature in some closing remarks of that nature, would you say? If we as elders were commending, looking for people to commend to uh, another work somewhere or somebody's looking for some support in ministry somewhere, would you think that you might come to our mind? If not, why not? You see, this is a simple and practical way that we can really examine just where we're at in terms of fruitful lives. Now, if I was to say to you, are there other individuals who you might think would come to the mind of the elders in such a situation? Could you think of any? You might think of a few. And so I would ask you, why would you think of them and maybe not yourself? What is the difference between their walk and testimony and yours? Even as we look at these individuals being named... Even in the name of, naming of them, they are being held up as individuals who are in some ways not just a blessing but also an example of what Paul's talking about. These are individuals, however flawed, that actually are representing the image of God in ways that are having impact and meaning in the lives of others. Another thing that I think is important for us to acknowledge is that we hear much talk about the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul and the ministry that he's given to and the way in which the Lord used him, and quite rightly so. And yet, it always blesses me to see him acknowledge those who are in the ministry team. All who are with me send greetings to you. Several times when Paul's speaking to the churches or writing to individuals in his letters, he, t- he uses the plural pronoun, we and us. Because he acknowledged that in all the work of the ministry that he was given to, he was never given to it alone. There were always, always those who rallied around, who supported who invested, who helped, who contributed. And some of us feel like, you know what, it's not really kind of worth giving my effort to, you know, really kind of going hard for the Lord and being given to good works. And, you know, maybe you're kind of like, oh, I don't want to be seen as like the teacher's pet which in and of itself is pride. But at the same time, maybe it's because you feel like, you know what, I've got more opportunity in my career to kind of be, excel and become noted and well-known. I can get to the top of my field. Maybe actually even in my career, I'll have other people helping me, other people that I will be directing and leading and Maybe there's a sense in which our lack of willingness to be given to the work of the Lord, even if it means we're not going to be in the pulpit or the top dog or recognized or whatever the case may be, is an unwillingness on our part to support others, to support those that the Lord has called and the Lord has gifted in ways that he may not have gifted you. I've always said, you know, just because a person excels in business, excels in their career, excels in academics, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're called likewise to excel in the church. The Bible says that we're a body. And everybody has a part to play. And so the idea is that we get in where we fit in. According to God's ordination. 1 Corinthians 12 says that God has placed the members in the body. He has placed the members. So we all have our place and our part to play. Don't resist God. Play your part and play it to the full. In order that God might be well pleased and that his image well represented. God is good and God is faithful. And God has caused us to be set apart in Christ. He has saved us a possession for Himself. And in doing so, He has saved a people to be productive. So I want you to take a moment to reflect. As we finish the book of Titus, just take a moment for, to reflect for a moment. Ask yourself three questions Where in your life are you fruitful and need to be more given to those things? Where in your life are you unfruitful? And what needs to be changed? You are called to be zealous for good works. Not just good works in a general sense, but good works in the context of the body of Christ. you might say, you know what, I'm a little uncertain. I want to be fruitful, but I don't really know how to be fruitful. It's wonderful because Paul states it very simply. He says, so as to help in cases of urgent need. And in as much as there is a financial implication there that we might be a people who are given to good works even to the extent that we would be given financially towards the needs of the ministry and those within it that's not the exclusive focus because money can't buy love and I've always said when the Lord has someone's heart there's nothing that he can't do with them, money or otherwise. And there are so many needs that we have, even as a church, that it doesn't require money throwing at it. It requires heart. And so on any level... Where are there there needs that you can be helping to meet? Maybe you can't even answer that question. And if you can't answer that question, then maybe that's kind of indicative of the fact that you've never cared to look. You've never cared to consider. Believe me, there is an abundance of need. There are people who need fellowship, and people who need encouragement. There are those who need practical help. There are things that need to be done. Even things that people commit themselves to do and have a casual attitude towards. Not appreciating just how them fulfilling that need contributes to the healthy running of a healthy ministry. And so let that be a simple starting point. How are you contributing to the needs found within the life of the church, whatever they may be? Because it is through this that we learn to be devoted to good works. Let's stand. Father God, we firstly just want to repent before you, Lord, and ask for your forgiveness because we are very aware of the many ways in which we are unfruitful and unproductive, ways in which we are distracted, ways in which we're even destructive, Lord, in our attitude, ways in which we've been divisive in our opinionated ways. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy that you don't chastise us for those things. And also, Lord, for your grace by which you help us to to be able to do better. And so, Lord, we ask you that you would help us to be fruitful productive people in your kingdom contributing to your work with delight and devotion not mere duty and Lord I pray that you would change our hearts where these things even just seem to be a drudgery and a chore and unwelcome help us to place our eyes back on Jesus Jesus who never found it a chore to walk among men and be disrespected, to be shamed, to be abused, to be disregarded. Jesus who never found it to be a drudgery, to be whipped and tortured. Jesus who never found it to be a chore, going to the cross for us and our sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and cherish him and value him and recognize him as our only savior and that we would cling to him with all that is in us and that we would desire to please you, Lord, and that we would desire to be like you There are so many who present insubstantial images for us to emulate. Trendsetters and influencers, quote unquote. And yet, Lord Jesus, you came to give a whole new life. We thank you. Help us, Lord, to be those who bear your image faithfully, putting the gospel on display. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.